It wasn't a jog through the Baltimore fog, but he got it one. He's flawless. The world recently witnessed a royal wedding. Could a coronation be on the horizon next? We'll look ahead to the Belmont Stakes. Plus, the wraps have finally been taken off sports betting in this country. Now that it's just about legal, what does legal sports betting mean for horse racing? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a head-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Our look ahead to Justify's quest for glory is just a few minutes away. But while Triple Crown winners will go down in history forever, their accomplishments come and fade away in terms of the business side of horse racing. Sure, huge crowds turned out for American Pharaoh the three times he ran after the Belmont Stakes. But can we say with any certainty that the overall business of racing is better for having a recent Triple Crown winner? Now, what of a much more concrete development in the gaming world, the recent Supreme Court ruling that removes the main obstacle to legalizing sports wagering in this country? In case you missed it, the high court ruled in a 7-2 decision that Congress cannot tell the state governments that sports gambling is off-limits to them. Now it's up to individual states to allow it. Two of them, New Jersey and Delaware, are ready to go. Five others are close— And you would think it's just a matter of time, and probably not that much time, before most other states follow. Until this decision, the only legal sport on which you could wager in most of the United States was horse racing. So, is the Supreme Court decision a death sentence for racing? Or will the rising tide raise all boats and be a boon, if not quite a panacea for the sport? It's a topic we've discussed on this show before, but now that it's essentially here... It's worth trying to read the tea leaves to determine how racing might fit into the bigger sports wagering landscape. And there is no better person to hit up on this topic than our own David Purdom of the ESPN Chalk website. So, David, for almost 30 years, casinos have used horse race tracks, which had gaming licenses already, as an entree to start operations. It's been an advantage, at least in the short term, for racetracks, who've siphoned off some of the casino's profits. With this new ruling, though... What sense do you get about where the brick-and-mortar sports betting shops would be located? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to start in Monmouth Park, a racetrack there in New Jersey. That'll be the first one to open. Uh, you know, I think uh, Freehold and the Meadowlands will follow as well, probably closer targeting football season before they're up and running. So, yeah, I think that the uh, horse tracks are going to enjoy the same sort of amenity benefits that the sports books bring to the casinos in Las Vegas. You know, the sports books don't make a lot of money. It's only 2% of the overall gaming win is accounted just by sports betting in Nevada. But it brings so many people in there. You know, you get a guy that wants to just come watch the game. And while he does that, his significant others out there playing the slots or, or doing other things like that. And in the horse racing, you know, maybe somebody will be playing the horses instead. So I think it's going to bring people to the horse tracks. And I do believe that is where sports betting will start in New Jersey, at least, and probably some other states. 
Well, let's take this from a slightly different standpoint, though. The timetable for this rolling out, I mean, New Jersey and Delaware seem to be ready to go, and five other states are pretty close. Of those five, only Mississippi doesn't have any live horse racing. Now, as we've talked about on this show previously, New Jersey already has Monmouth Park, and it's set to open Memorial Day weekend. How much time, realistically, do racetracks in these other states have before the genie is out of the proverbial bottle with betting shops built elsewhere? I don't think they are going to run out of time. I think once you get an established sports book at the racetrack, I think people are generally going to go there to enjoy the atmosphere and place their bets. I think the bigger fear probably will be uh, mobile gaming. And once people have access to placing their sports bets uh, on their phone, where they don't have to get up and drive to the horse track or, or the casino to place their bets, then you might see uh, some sort of, you know, uh, re- reduction in traffic. But to start off with, and for the first couple, I w- I'm going to say years, uh, that would be my guess, before mobile gaming is completely put in place and efficient. Um, I-, I think they're going to, every track in the, in the U.S. that offers sports betting, I think we'll see some sort of benefit just from increased foot traffic. Well, do you think that that's where state governments would authorize these sports books to be because racetracks have gaming licenses already. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I, you see it in Monmouth Park. You see it in New Jersey. I know New York has talked about it as well, as well as being at some off-track betting parlors. Delaware is another example. Of course, the tracks there offer already NFL parlay wagering, and the Delaware governor sent a statement out saying that they are planning to be up and running by the 1st of July. So, I do think that everything is going to start off at these racetracks, and racetracks will have uh, an advantage with their gaming license already established. They just need to get the infrastructure. They'll have to, you know, probably partner with somebody to run the sportsbook operation. So I think they're in great position. I think this is a win for horse racing. I really do. Now, you talked about online. You know, several tracks have their own advanced deposit wagering online platforms for betting horse races. Churchill Downs has Twin Spires, New York Racing has Naira Bets. What are you hearing about those services expanding to sports betting? I have not heard anybody mention that. It's a very good question. I wish I had more to add to it and elaborate on that, but I have not heard in Twin Spires, and I communicate with those guys every once in a while. That's a great question that I will ask them. I wish I could bring more to the to the answer, but right now I do not have a good answer for that. Well, let's take it from another way. How much time do these places have, do you think, before the tide passes them by and other places set up bigger brand names that the tracks cannot compete with? Well, the interesting part, I guess, about Twin Spires is since it's national, it goes across state lines, and the Wire Act still is focused on sports betting. So Twin Spires, I would think they would have some difficulties getting around the Wire Act, you know, Horse racing is exempt from the Wire Act, so they are allowed to take bets across state lines. Sports betting is not. It is the focus of the Wire Act. So that would be an issue to begin with. So, boy, you're, you're right there. They are going to be un, under some sort of time crunch to, to get that in. Now, ultimately, I think the Wire Act probably is amended or even goes away, similar to the PASPA, the Professional Amateur Sports Protection Act, that the SCOTUS just shut down. Maybe they have to amend the Wire Act to allow this to become 
a national sports betting market and horse racing exchange. Um, I think Betfair, we haven't mentioned them yet, uh, is in a really good spot here. Uh, they already have the uh, exchange model in New Jersey, as you know. So I think they could be a big player in this as well. But they are going to be under a time crunch, and I think that federal law of the Wire Act is going to, going to cause them some trouble. David Purdom of ESPN Chalk is with us here on In the Gate. Let's approach the the would-be effect of the past ruling on horse racing from an even different perspective. What do you know about millennials, people 18 to 35 years old, let's say, and their gambling habits in terms of whether they enjoy games of pure chance, you know, slots, craps, roulette, etc., versus data-driven games of skill, daily fantasy, and now sports betting? Yeah, absolutely. The, the millennials, all the studies seem to indicate that uh, the data-driven skill-based gaming are uh, the ones that the millennials prefer, even uh, on esports. They like to wager on, uh, you know, what we old schoolers would call video games. There's uh, NBA 2K, the NBA video game that, that's real popular. You know, the NBA started a league by that. And I talked to one offshore sports book last week, and they had a season-opening tournament on this NBA 2K. It's the video game that these guys are playing. And the sports book took $1 million in handle on bets on that. So uh, millennials are gravitating towards that. And I also talked, when we mentioned Betfair earlier, uh, who has that um, horse racing exchange. And they said they found that their demographic, it is does trend to be a lot younger using the exchange where it's almost a peer-to-peer, head-to-head uh, type wager uh, that they seem that the younger, the millennial generation seems to like that more than uh, your traditional horse racing paramutual start framework. So, I mean, horse racing has had and continues to have more data available about its sport than any other sport, and it's had that for over 150 years. How does that impact its ability to compete in this growing sports wagering landscape? It needs to become more digital. There are people who could still continue, and I, even including myself. I, when I ever, if I ever go to a track, I like to pick up the racing form and read over it. But you look down the hall, anybody else there, and then a younger person, he, he's on his phone and he's trying to go for it. So I think they need to improve the digital transmission and product that they provide this data on, the platform that they provide this data on figure new ways to use social media. Twinspires does a pretty good with their social media account, you know, putting out the, the fun stories that people like to hear about uh, long shots hitting and so forth. So if that data, and you're absolutely right, there's a ton of good data on horse racing that people can use and study and try to handicap. We just have to figure out how to present it in a more digital friendly way. What about the idea that most of that data in racing is not free in most cases? You have to pay for it with the daily racing form and other such services, where for just about every other sport, it is easily available and free. That's a good point. Um, you know, there are becoming more and more subscription sites, uh, new sites uh, from uh, the athletic to uh, Action Network, those niche products that do come charge people for their content. So maybe they don't need to change. Maybe horse racing doesn't need to change and can continue to charge for those. But they also might want to look into, you know, having some free information. And if you want to upgrade to the premium product, then you have to pay. That's something that all media uh, is trying to figure out from, you know, your standard news media to your more niche markets, and to your content providers and data providers in, in the sports, including horse racing. 
in the bigger picture here, let's get to the bottom line. Let's fast forward to a fully mature market where a particular gambling operation offers horse racing and sports gambling in one place. Not that horse racing isn't a sport, but you know what I mean. And with, you know, whether it's online or at a brick and mortar place, what effect does sports gambling ultimately have on horse racing? Well, I do not think it's going to cannibalize anything. You know, back when PAST was put in place in 1992, one of the, uh, proponents, the supporters of it was Churchill Downs. They were worried that, hey, if we allow people to sports betting to come to our tracks, it will cannibalize our horse racing. And that turned out to to be probably a a pretty bad decision for horse racing. And it could have, you know, turned the tide instead of seen the decline. So, you know, I don't think it's going to cannibalize it. If horse racing will modernize and start looking at innovative ways, a Betfair exchange, uh, some new attractive, innovative uh, digital products that they can uh, promote their content on, uh, you know, I think this is a win. I really do think this is a win for foot traffic at horse tracks and racetracks. And, you know, whether that increases the handle, which allows them to crease the purse, I don't know that, but it may increase the uh, revenue from the restaurants at the horse track or the bars at the horse track. You just the general foot traffic. Anytime we get more people at the racetrack, that's good. And I can tell you that, you know, Monmouth Park had 61,000 people uh, when American Pharaoh came through. If they open up on, on that uh, Memorial Day, which is going to be tight, they, uh, it's going to be real close to see if they can get that up and running that quickly. I, you got to think that place is going to be packed. Uh, the, the Dennis Dreisen, the, 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 the guy, the official that uh, represents Monmouth Park, he said he put the over-under at 10,000 people. I, I mean, I got to take the over on that. Just, just The interest on this is over, overwhelming, and I think this sports betting legalization will be good for horse racing. Well, I will go out on my own limb and say this is probably not the last time we'll be talking about all of this on this podcast. So, David Purdom, thank you so, so much. We look forward to seeing how this goes on down the road. Excellent. Thanks for having me on. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, two down and one to go. Could there be a second Triple Crown winner in three years? Gary West joins us to discuss right after this. Justify, good magic. They've matched strides virtually from the start as they move to the top of the stretch. A head and head battle looks like a showdown in the fog. It is good magic on the inside. Justify on the outside. And now Justify and Mike Smith trying to grab the lead. Justify begins to pull away. Justify is in front. Justify and here's tenfold on the outside. Bravazo. Justify Bravazo tenfold. Justify. It wasn't a jog through the Baltimore fog, but he got it one. He's flawless. Justify. 
with good magic. They match strides virtually from the start as they move to the top of the stretch. A head-and-head battle looks like a showdown in the fog. It is good magic on the inside. Justify on the outside. And now Justify and Mike Smith trying to grab the lead. Justify begins to pull away. Justify is in front. Justify and here's tenfold on the outside. Bravazo. Justify Bravazo tenfold. Justify. It wasn't a jog through the Baltimore fog, but he got it one. He's flawless. Of the 12 Triple Crown winners in American history, only two, the first and the last, stand alone in their respective decades. Sir Barton in the 19-teens, and of course American Pharaoh, the only one in the 2010s. That might change in three weeks when Justify goes for the Triple Crown and the Belmont Stakes. So to take a first look ahead, let's bring in our good friend Gary West. And, you know, Gary, Randy Moss said on the NBC broadcast at the end of the Preakness how, well, the time wasn't great and he wasn't particularly thrilled at the performance. But I don't know. I love Randy Moss. Respect the heck out of him. He helps make speed figures. But what I saw was a horse that finally got punched in the mouth and responded. I thought it was a pretty impressive performance. What about you? I agree that uh, it was an impressive performance. In Kentucky, he won on pure talent. He is a sensational horse. That was an unprecedented victory there. And I think you could make the argument, I will make the argument, that his performance at Churchill Downs was one of the best we have seen in the last 20 years because he was within a half a length of a very fast pace, 45-4 and for the opening half mile or 45 and three, and he kept going. Usually when we see an opening half mile like that, the early leaders end up in the ruck, but he was right there early and he was in the winner's circle when it was all over. You just don't see that. Remember Orb's Kentucky Derby, fast paced. They all just disappeared and that enabled Orb to come running and sweep by everybody. And I kind of expected that to happen when I looked up and saw 45 and change, but this big red horse just kept going. Pure talent, amazing talent unprecedented achievement. Then we come to the Preakness, and he is hooked from the outset. Uh, Good Magic elected to go with him for the, well, they went together for a mile. And yet, Justify, again, kept going. He won this race on courage. And I think that those two combined to make just one heck of a racehorse, a tremendous racehorse. The question going forward, though, is, whether that preakness was an indicator that this tremendous racehorse is beginning to tail off. He's come a long way in a short time. After the derby, he had a bruised foot. I think it's fair to say that if this had not been the preakness, he wouldn't have come back in two weeks. He would not be running at Pimlico. But he came back, and he took on all challengers again, and he won on courage. And, you know, going into the preakness, I don't think he displayed the kind of energy he showed going into the Kentucky Derby. It'll be very interesting to see how he comes out of this race, what is his energy level at Belmont Park. I think he is very, very vulnerable here, and in fact, I would say if I'm going to bet the race, I'm betting against him at Belmont Park. Well, here's the thing, and there's no cheering in the press box, nor am I. I'm just pointing out that it seems that although the Belmont Stakes is the longest race of the three and the longest race on dirt in North America or probably anywhere in the world, it doesn't seem to be a race won traditionally by closers. And so Justify being a front-running horse, I would think would have a little bit of an advantage here. 
Well, you're quite right. The Belmont Park Oval is a is a racetrack that uh, favors horses that can maintain a high cruising speed for a long time. The big sweeping turns emphasize power rather than athleticism. This horse has both power and athleticism. But uh, he has speed, and that powerful speed enables him to control the pace. He got away with a uh, pretty light pace in the Preakness. He went 47 and change in the Preakness. And in the in the Belmont, he, he could be out there in the opening half mile in 49. There doesn't appear to be much speed at all. And, and that, I think, raises a number of intriguing questions. Will somebody enter a horse the little speed that that can force justify to uh, pick it up in that opening half mile, three quarters of a mile. Will all of these people who uh, passed on the Preakness with horses that would be logical contenders, will they come back in the Belmont and will they bring with them maybe a rabbit? It's a perfect, perfect opportunity for somebody to, I think, go after Justify with not only a, a, a powerful contender, but a rabbit to make things uncomfortable for the favorite. Can I go back to one thing you said just a moment ago? What, when it comes to horses, is the difference between power and athleticism? Yes, yes. Well, the, the classic example is Easy Goer Sunday Silence. Sunday Silence went around the turn better than any horse I think I've ever seen. And the turn is where he had the advantage over Easy Goer. Easy Goer was just a powerful blockbuster of a horse. And at Pimlico, remember at Pimlico, Easy Goer actually got in front of Sunday Silence. Then Sunday Silence zipped around that second turn and got to the lead again. But at Belmont Park, where you have this huge turn, that minimizes the the effectiveness or the advantage of that athleticism that some of these horses that can run the turn excel. So Belmont Park is a completely different kind of racetrack, and, and that's why the Triple Crown is such a difficult series to sweep, because... Not only are the distances different, but each each race emphasizes a different set of skills, and it takes a sensational horse to sweep the series. So uh, that's one reason Justify is, is I think, such a, a tremendous athlete and racehorse, because he, he has power. He can go that opening half mile in 45 anytime you want him to. And he runs the turn so so well. In fact, in the Preakness, it was around the, the second turn where he got the advantage on good magic. He went that fourth quarter mile in 24 and change. And, and that's when where good magic really couldn't quite keep up. I think it was about 24 and three or so, that fourth quarter mile. And he inched away from good magic. And then he had just enough to hang on and repel the challenge of Brevezo in tenfold. But, you know, Brevezo and tenfold aren't, anyone's idea of one of the best three-year-olds in the country and yet he just beat them by a half a length so it makes you think that uh, justify could very well be vulnerable in the belmont gary west the dean of racing journalists is with us here on in the gate and so now as we get to the cast of characters that will oppose justify in the belmont you'd have to think that the todd squad who qualified for the Kentucky Derby and are all based at Belmont Park will just walk out of their stalls and challenge him. Let's run down the list of potential challengers here. Well, the Todd squad, I think, would be the most formidable challengers. Vino Rosso, who uh, did not do much in, in the Kentucky Derby. I think he just threw a clunker there. He finished, what was it, ninth but, uh, or, or tenth. 
he he is a horse i think of of a lot of ability and and i think we could see him very well come back in the in the belmont stakes as could audible audible of course ran third at churchill downs made a late run along the inside rallied from 12th to be third logically you would think uh, this horse is certainly going to be a threat at belmont park going a mile and a half and that raises an interesting situation as well because audible is owned in a partnership that includes winstar and the china club who also own justify and quip that that's right and quip who ran in the previous ran last by the way uh, i don't think quip was a was a serious threat to justify audible would be uh will they be tempted to run audible or will they say we're not going to compromise our own chances of sweeping a triple crown I, I think if they don't run Audible, there will be something of an outrage, uh, and and I think many people will think that uh, that perhaps compromises the validity of of the, of the Triple Crown if Audible isn't in there, and you know it raises the question of all of these horses being concentrated in the hands of a few owners and trainers. It's not good for horse racing because it, of course, reduces the contentiousness and competitiveness of the major events. The one group of people have all the good horses they can just avoid each other and and pick off the cherries from the low branches um anyway we want to see audible in the belmont i I think that's what horse racing wants to see that's what's best for the sport and it is what's best for audible this is a horse that has a legitimate chance to win a classic and it would be unfair to deny him that chance two other horses i want to mention before we get out of here one of them now I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth because on the one hand, I said that closers don't traditionally win the Belmont and that would favor Justify. But the other type of horse that does show up here and do and does relatively well is what we call the grinder. The horse that doesn't have a big turn of foot, but just keeps coming with constant quarter mile fractions and doesn't really tire out the way Drosselmeyer did, say, in 2010. And the one I'm thinking of is Hofberg. I think Hofberg is a grinder that could really be a factor here. I agree. I, I like Hofberg a great deal for the Belmont. He's an improving horse. Uh, he ran seventh in the Kentucky Derby and had a horrible trip. He really did. And uh, probably should have been closer that day, maybe even as close as, as third. And and he is just the kind of horse that, that often makes a big difference at Belmont Park and just the kind of horse that could pull off an upset. And he's in the hands of Bill Mott, one of the greatest trainers the sports has ever seen. So I have a lot of respect for Hofburg. And just to add to the circus, which this is clearly going to become, there is Gronk. Gronkowski's just looking for a little bit of racing room. Switch to the stand side now as they make their way, fanning out with a couple of furlongs still to travel. Nialetti, another bat. Gronkowski now making progress. But it's Nialetti. She's tough out in front. Gronkowski. Nialetti hanging tough. Gronkowski under the near side running rail from Purser and Iconic Sunset. It's Gronkowski who's fought his way to the front. Could he be Kentucky Derby bound? Gronkowski won the Burden Stakes. Gronkowski, who was supposed to come over for the Kentucky Derby, there was a physical issue, but in that time, he was transferred to the barn of Chad Brown. So that horse is here now and training comfortably in New York and will again walk right out of his stall. How good is this horse? What do we know about him? Well, we don't know a great deal other than that that he was successful in England against uh, lesser lights and he is a, a physically attractive horse 
who certainly looks like he can run all day, whether that uh, puts him in the rank of contenders for the Belmont, I'm not sure. But I do trust Chad Brown. And if he brings him over, I I think uh, he has impressed Chad Brown enough to suggest that this horse belongs in the field. So we'll have to see what happens there. These days, nobody really wants to run a mile and a half. But if they think Justify is vulnerable and, and he appears to be, some guys might jump in that hadn't been thinking of it. Like Jerry Hollendorfer, with, who was an instilled regard, he, he ran a big race. In the oh, my God. He got destroyed by Magna Moon and finished yeah. fourth. He had a horrible trip and finished fourth. And, and after that, I'm sure Hollendorfer wasn't thinking anything more about the Triple Crown. He might be thinking, hmm, you know, maybe we have a shot here. He, he could jump back in the game. It is going to be a circus at Belmont Park. Will it become a coronation? We shall see. But Gary West, thank you so much as always. My pleasure. Our thanks to Gary West and to David Purdom. The debate has raged for 50 years in American horse racing. Is using Lasix the best idea or the worst? The diuretic drug drains fluid buildup in the lungs fluid buildup could cause blood vessels to burst. The United States and Canada allow Lasix on race day. No other country does that anywhere. Not only do detractors say that dehydration is dangerous, but that Lasix masks other substances that are there. That's why Major League Baseball just suspended a superstar for 80 games when Lasix showed up on a test. The league ruled that Robinson Cano intended to mask a drug, but American horsemen are different from the rest. They say that Lasix doesn't mask drugs. Instead, it dilutes the urine to make drug levels look acceptable to the law. Either way, horsemen won't win support of the viewing and betting public by letting drug issues become a potentially fatal flaw. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us on the iTunes store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.